Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Thanks for listening in today to this episode of the Out of the Question podcast. On numerous occasions, I have asked young people, what do you believe God is calling you to do? The answer I customarily get is, you mean what job? I say, no, not a job, but what God wants you to do with your life. This often stumps them. Even though most are committed to biblical ideas, they just don't seem to know how to put legs to their faith. I submit that all believers need to recognize that their presence on earth is no accident and that the Lord has a legitimate and distinctive call on their lives. But what exactly is a calling? A calling, just like it sounds, is something we hear. Whether it's a phone call, a doorbell, or a notification on a smart device, these are things which summon us to respond. And I would say, although not in the same way, when we discern correctly the call coming from God, it becomes a way to put our faith into action or to use the earlier phrase, give it legs. Today I have with me Josh Lawrence of Great Commission Ministries, whose story of answering God's call is unique enough that I felt we could benefit from hearing what he has to say. Josh, thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm blessed to be with you today. All right. Your story, based on having heard you relate it, seems to easily be divided into two parts. Please share with my listeners who you are, who you were, and how you responded to a call from God that no doubt surprised you and maybe others who also knew you. Okay, well, thank you for having me, like I said. And um, who, who I am is Josh Lawrence. I'm a missionary in Africa. I've been there for about 12 years. Uh, with my wife, when we first moved, it was just her and I. We were four months married. She's two months pregnant. And we have been in Africa since then, in 2010, when we moved there. But who I am, I, you know, that's what I do. I, I, I'm i a believer in Jesus Christ, a born-again Christian, and uh, a minister, too. And in the last couple of years, we have, since the Lord mentioning callings, calling us to move around the states to to preach on missions to preach on the great commission and so there's a lot that's going on but i'm a believer in jesus christ uh, who got born again boy about 14 years ago in 2007 14 15 years ago something like that and so that's what i do that's who i am now where i was um is another thing entirely when when i was growing up I ignored the call of God. And by ignoring the call of God, I went down a road of, uh, that is commonly the testimony of many or the story of many of drugs and alcohol here in the United States. I was raised in St. Louis, Missouri, though I was born in California, um, in Palmdale, California. We moved to Missouri when I was three years old. And we had a broken family. We... Um, me and my brothers and sister grew up, uh, you know, in a lot of turmoil. There was a lot of drug abuse, a lot of violence, a lot of uh, things going on. 
And uh, when my dad left, my mom really trying to pick up the pieces of the family was taking us to churches, different churches, and we heard the gospel. And I never disbelieved in the gospel. Um, There was never a time where I said, well, this can't be true. I always believed that Jesus Christ was God, that he did come down to earth and he lived a life of sinless perfection. He went to the cross and died. I never had a hard time believing that. I don't know why. I know some people have hard times believing that and others have different stories. But it wasn't a disbelief in Jesus Christ that caused me not to hear the call of Christ or follow Jesus. It was a desire for pleasure. It also wasn't the painful circumstances that my life was in, uh, surrounded by fatherlessness, uh, violence, and all these different things. As painful as those were, I remember after hearing the gospel for several years of my life at the age of 11 years old, you know, this is kind of a subjective thing, but uh, and we can talk about callings later. I'm sure uh, you have questions about it. But I heard or sensed the Holy Spirit speaking to me after hearing the gospel. I was 11 years old and the Lord was calling me to repent, to change my mind, uh, uh, walk away from my rebellion and believe in Jesus Christ in a more relational way. So can I ask you a question, if I may stop you for a second? Of course. Most people today say 11 years old. I mean, how rebellious could an 11-year-old actually be? I I don't imagine, but maybe I'm wrong, that 11 years old you were already into drug and alcohol abuse. I think oftentimes people want to make it that children are innocent and boys will be boys. That's not seems to be what you're saying. No, yeah, good question. I mean, the, one of the, the the pinnacles, one of the foundational teachings in the Bible is that we're born sinners, original sin. And as much as we love our children, I have three children all born in Africa, and they're beautiful and precious and all those things. Um, to deny the sinfulness of children, even from the time they were really, really young, babies, um, would be not only to deny the Bible and its revelation, but also to to deny experience and just raising our kids. But yes, you're right. At the age of 11, I had already started um, smoking marijuana. Um, Unfortunately, very sadly, I had already uh, viewed pornography. Um, I had many older brothers and there were magazines being passed around them. And at the age of nine, I had uh, viewed pornography in a magazine And it really messed my mind up. It really damaged me, though I was already sinned. But the thing about it, I've been trying to communicate this to people who don't have the testimony of drugs and alcohol. Because oftentimes there's this stigma attached or this kind of caricature that everybody in a broken home is going to run towards sexual immorality or, or run to drug abuse or alcohol abuse. And all these things. And that's not the case for me, though I did come from a broken home. There are people from very good homes, Christian homes that are running to these things. And I'm trying to send a message out there, though I did come from a broken home and it was painful. The reason why I continued in those things was because they were pleasurable. 
I enjoyed them very much. It wasn't because my mom, um, uh, you know, our relationship with our mom wasn't because my dad was abusive or drunk and not there. It was because I enjoyed them. I had every opportunity to be delivered from my sin by Jesus Christ, even in a painful family. Okay. So you go 11, you know, you, you go into your teen years. What was your life like then? Well, you know, 11 years old, started smoking and getting into deep thoughts of sexual morality and viewing pornography at the age of I, I, sexual morality at the age of 12, 13 years old, um, physically, uh, which is incredibly young, I know. And it, uh, but that's what my life was like. And at 14 or 15, the continued pursuit of pleasure, you know, because it's an empty, bottomless well, it never really can satisfy uh, the pursuit of pleasure and, and, and uh, hedonism. So I, that led me to at 14, 15 years old, I started using harder drugs. I started using cocaine and heroin. And at the age of 15, I started using them intravenously through a needle, just shooting up heroin. And as the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is everlasting life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I was heading down a road of death. The superficial sins were the drug abuse, the alcohol, the sexual morality. The manifestation of something much deeper, the deeper sin was pride selfishness, desires for pleasure over desires for God. And because of that pursuit, aggressive pursuit uh, of pleasure, I had, by the time I was 20, overdosed several times. Uh, Really at the age of 21, when I got saved, I had overdosed on heroin 10 different times. Wow. And at the age of 21, homeless in St. Louis, it, it was almost identical to when I was 11 hearing, sensing that deep kind of resounding call of God. The Holy Spirit, I understand now, but the Lord asking me if I will serve him. At 11, I told him I'd serve him after high school. And years after high school, almost dead from my drug abuse and homeless, the same call, kind of a call out of rebellion to follow him, to repent of my sins. And at the age of 21, I was pretty overwhelmed by his willingness and desire to want to forgive me. So let and, me ask uh, you this, because yeah. this is something that for some people, okay, so this sounds like a story and it's we, apparently we're going to have a happy ending here, but you're making the case that you were putting your hands over your ears and going, no, 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 I'm going to do what I want to do. Yeah. What do you think made a difference at 21 that earlier on you successfully ignored? Why could you no longer successfully ignore this? That's a, that's a, it really is a great question. And it, it may get a little deeper than you want to go, but I think there's two reasons, two major reasons. I'll give the easy one first and then the more difficult one, I think, um, that is up for interpretation. The, the, the easy one is I was very desperate. I was homeless. There was a sense in which I did not want to die because however convoluted and deceived I was, I did have a belief in hell. Though I, was a, I wasn't afraid of a lot, 
in, in the world. I would shoot up heroin from a very young age, 14, 15. I was very violent man, rageful, always kind of a blood vengeance, violence, always fighting with people. I was afraid of hell and, and desperately understanding that it was through all the overdoses that, um, uh, you know, I could die and I could go to hell and uh, eternally. It scared me. So a desperation of my circumstances, really being a loser, and then a fear of hell, all, all of that. But what kept, I believe, and this is the second thing, what, what kept me from really hearing or sensing the call of God all those years, I think that it's, it's because my heart was hard and within that free will at the age of 11 to try to negotiate with God, to make a deal with God that I will serve him after high school. When I rebelled against God at the age of 11, I basically told him, no, almost I was talking to myself. It was this much of an, of a, a it wasn't audible, but, you know, Christians who've sensed the voice of God at times can relate. I think that rebellion that God left me to myself for a while, though he always loved me, though he always protected me, though he preserves me and he gets all the glory. I think there are times when we rebel against God, our heart hardens so much that God will leave us to ourselves for a while. And that's why it's so important that we choose whom we'll serve this day. I think it was God silence, in a sense, for all those 10 years that once again, he powerfully came to me and gave me the uh, the deal again, gave me the option. And, and I think it's so important that when God speaks to us, that we respond to him with humility and obedience, because we don't know whether it be God remaining silent, I'm not saying that he, you know, remains silent for everyone, or it's us so hard-hearted that we can't hear him. Either way, it becomes much more difficult as people get older to repent of their sins. I have noticed this as being a, being a pastor the last uh, 12 years, and in my life in ministry, and my personal experience I'm not really hearing or sensing the voice and the call of God all those 10 years from 11 to 21. Okay. So obviously you were a prodigal who returned yeah. and I'm sure that parable has meaning for you in a way that for those who haven't had such a, you might say illustrious, and I'll put that in quotes background, but there were people in your life who were praying for you. There were yeah. people in your life who were ready to receive you when you, in a sense, came to your senses. Yeah. Talk a little bit yeah. about that, because I, I remember you talking about being in um, in jail, or I, I can't remember the exact thing you mentioned, but whether it was your mother or, or somebody there was actively praying for you so that the circumstances even surprised you how it all played out. Yeah, it was years after I got saved that I heard this story. I had overdosed so many times, as I had mentioned, and um, my mom was at a, uh, you know, there were several people. My mom was praying. She got other people praying. There were pastors that uh, were praying. But on one particular occasion, my mom was in a restaurant, and it was a nice restaurant where inside the bathroom, there were maitre d'ines serving. 
And she had got the call that I had overdosed on heroin. And they told her they didn't know if I was going to live or die. I was being rushed to the hospital. And she went in the bathroom and she was crying. And uh, a maitre d' and an older woman came to her and inquired what was happening. My mom told her everything. And she said she'd be praying for me. And two years later, in the same restaurant, the same bathroom, the same old woman, when my mom walked in, came up to her and said, how's Josh doing? I've been praying for him every day for two years. You know, she called me by name and she was faithfully praying. And it just, it it shows the testimony of her love for Christ and her love for the lost, but also the power of intercessory prayer. And so, yes, there are many people that were praying for me, many people that um, rejoiced in the salvation that God delivered to me. Yeah, I loved that story because so often people think, yeah, yeah, I'll pray for someone. But this is a woman who she meant what she said and she did what she promised. Yes, maybe she didn't have, you know, a um, the memory that, you know, she probably went and wrote it down in a journal and she prayed and she prayed. And I'm just I can't wait, wait to meet her in heaven and thank her for her prayers. Yes. All right, so now we have Josh, the former addict, who is now somehow become a minister. I'm sure a lot of people who hear the story of addicts, former criminals, prisoners who come to faith and say, I I hope they don't get too discouraged, but, you know, there's not going to be much for them in their future. Talk a little bit about how you went from not hearing God, to now hearing a call that most people, I mean, we're talking about Africa. Mm -hmm. Uh, People like to see it on a map, but Mm -hmm. I don't know how many want to go there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you get married and you and your wife are heading to Africa. So fill in that part of your history. Well, I had God in, um, I needed serious help. So when I was 21 and I received the forgiveness of the Lord, um, as he called me again, as I'd mentioned in a similar fashion when I was 11, I received it. I wanted repentance. And I called an organization called Teen Challenge that was really no longer for teens. That's what it was called in its origin. And I went to a program at the Assemblies of God. And it was a great program. A lot of great people there. And they cared. They gave me a home. They discipled me. And, you know, eight months into this program, eight, 10 months, and it's a 14-month program uh, where they help people with uh, life-controlling issues. I knew that the Lord wasn't calling me. There were just some things that I couldn't see eye to eye, though there were awesome brothers and sisters helping me. And I was just praying, Lord, show me where you want me to go after this. And there was a minister who came, and his name was Ken Graves, who um, the Lord revealed to me because I was praying for it so much. Lord, show me where you want me to go. And this guy came up and he had mentioned the School of Ministry in Bangor, Maine. So when I graduated Teen Challenge, I enrolled in the School of Ministry. And two weeks out of after graduating Teen Challenge, I moved to Maine and joined the School of Ministry at Calvary Chapel, Bangor, where for the next two years, I was discipled. And the word of God was spoken into my life and training, especially I went to work for a program that helped men like me 
um, a similar program to Teen Challenge. After graduating this, there was a opportunity given to me by my pastor and the that graduating class, which it's, it's, it's not a big school. It's just a school of ministry. There was three of us, and we went to Kenya, Africa. That's in Kenya, Eastern Africa. And we did a six-week mission trip. And um, when we were there, we, we had visited a few churches that really had grieved us, some real bad preaching in terms of um, really trying to e- exploit these poor people of as much money as they could get out of them. And it wasn't like when I was 21, where the Holy Spirit alongside the world convicted the world, convicted me of sins. But now the calling that I heard just came from Scripture, Matthew 28. Uh, Jesus said, all authority has been given to him in heaven on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So when I read that, to me, there was an objective calling. It wasn't that the Lord came to me by night and spoke audibly or that I even got a deep sense that he wanted me to move Africa. But rather, I had a personal desire through a care for those people I had spent six weeks with to want to plant a church where they could come and hear the word of God without manipulation, coercion, or any other type of exploitation. And all I needed is to discover what were the objective realities of the call of God. What I mean by that is, what is the scripture calling me to do before God will providentially allow me to go plant a church in Africa? And for me, it was just to have the laying on of hands and to get permission by my pastor and elders. So it wasn't a call. It wasn't a voice. It wasn't some subjective sense, which I know people get. For me, it was just looking at the Bible saying to go into all the worlds. So when I ended that six-week trip, I uh, got we got picked up by my pastor in Boston. We were driving back to Bangor, that four-hour drive. And I said, will you allow me to go plant a church in Kenya? Would you bless that? And he said, yes, I'll bless it. And that's all I really needed in terms of the call of God. I needed to obey the scripture and on having the laying of hands. And I needed the scripture to guide me, as I mentioned, Matthew 28 did, to go into all the world preaching the gospel and making disciples. Okay, so I think you brought up two things that are really important. One, you read the word of God and there, you know, the law of God, the examples of our forebears in the faith, tell us what God wants. And and so there's the basics, right? I'm not supposed to steal. I'm not supposed to kill. I'm not supposed to commit adultery, blah, blah, blah. Right. So if you Mm -hmm. don't have that foundation, then you're not going out equipped to bring the good news of Jesus Christ, because apart Mm -hmm. from the Holy Spirit, people can obey God's law, can't Mm -hmm. do what they're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. But then you talked about the laying on of hands, getting permission. In other words, a calling will also involve people who will guide you will counsel you and mentor you. So you're not out there on a limb all by yourself saying it's just me and my Bible. Talk a little bit about 
why it's significant that there are those who support you in your calling. So significant. You know, and I'm probably a little more sensitive to this because of my surroundings for the last 12 years living in Africa. Not that Africa is the only place where the abuses are in terms of subjective callings, but also in America, around the world. And I hear all the time, God has called me to do this. God has called me to do that. God is, you know, God has called me to live with this person or marry this person or go to this place or buy this thing. And, and as silly as it may sound, I have heard people even say, God has called me to, to buy a sports car or to do these sorts of things. And so it's, th- this is actually a subject that I, I'm very interested and I'm glad you brought up today. If the call of God that is subjective, what I mean by that is God is speaking to us to to marry a certain person or to go to a certain place or to do a certain thing, then there has to be biblical realities to to prove the leading of God in your calling. For example, you go to a woman and say, God called me to marry you. Well, that woman has complete free will, and she has a relationship with God and has been prayerful. And, you know, if she doesn't want to, she doesn't have to. She doesn't have to sit there and obey some sort of subjective calling that a man has because he thinks God told him to marry that person. And so there has to be a multitude of counsel, and there's wisdom in that. A lot of people want to get hung up, well, who am I supposed to marry? Well, here's some biblical requirements. Uh, You're supposed to marry somebody who is of the Christian faith, not to be unequally yoked. They're a born-again Christian with fruit in their lives to prove that Christianity. And also, they're somebody of the opposite sex. And with that, the Bible has revealed certain things about marriage. Now, there's also other things in terms of wisdom. When I had the desire to go plant a church in Kenya, I had to have objective realities. The Bible calls us to be in submission, Hebrews chapter 13, to those who have spiritual authority over us, our pastors, our elders, our deacons. And if I'm wanting to do something and they say, you know what, Josh, you need more training. You've been very immature. You've been very irresponsible. You've been very disobedient and we need more time with you, then I need to be able to submit to that because then ministry gets so confusing. It gets very difficult. We need the blessings of those who have rule over us, as Hebrews chapter 13 clearly indicates. And that's something I believed very strongly back in 2009 when I wanted to uh, go into Kenya and plant a church. And actually, it was to my surprise when I asked my pastor, if he would bless that, that he even said, yes, I thought I was too young and immature to go plant a church. But that was so empowering that he did lay hands on and he prayed and the elders of the church and they blessed the whole planting of Calvary Chapel Eldoret. Let's take the story a little further. You didn't go as a single man. You went as a married man. And so Mm -hmm. your wife also would need to have a similar call because Amen. she's responsible to God, just as you're responsible to God. So yeah. how did that play out? In 2009, when I um, wanted to plant a church and was returning from this missions trip, 
I was unmarried um, with a desire for one particular woman to marry me. And so you already um, knew who she was. Yes. Okay. I, I, I had wanted her and desired her. So I, uh, I asked her to marry me, not a couple months after I returned for this mission trip. So in my proposal, which this is circumstantial, it's different for everyone. But in my proposal, I said, before you say yes, understand I'm called to move to Africa to plant a church. If you don't want to go to Africa to plant a church with me, then don't say yes. <laughs> and uh, she said she'll follow me anywhere. Now, if I was already married, I absolutely agree with you that before a man just makes a decision, especially one as significant as moving to Africa or even moving to a different place, even the United States, that he should uh, have his wife also pray through it and they should be in agreement before something like that happened. Or at least she needs to hear from the Lord on, on whether, you know, to follow him and to have peace in that whole situation. Yeah. And I think that's important. And it may take time. It may mm-hmm. take some uh, forestalling of your plans. But yep. since two people married or one flesh, this really has to be a joint thing. And at the time, yeah. you didn't have children, but children then play a part. Now, in going to your website, I got to see that your wife and now your children do not look like they're from Kenya. Mm-hmm. And I've known this a lot with other missionaries, whether they were to Fiji or whether they were to India. Blonde-haired, blue-eyed young people are are very much noticed in these regions. Yeah. So are, do you find that that's a help, that you look so different than the people you go to serve, or is mm-hmm. it a hindrance? It is uh, mostly a hindrance. You know, we stick out. So the natural weakness of the flesh, and I'm referring to my flesh and my my wife's, is not to be people who stick out so much, uh, not to be a minority. And with that, draw so much attention that is often negative, Uh, whether it be, you know, to use us for certain things or just negative attention. And so, you know, when you walk through a town, especially when we moved to Eldoret, Kenya, that city that's in Western Kenya, out of back then 500,000 people, there may have been 20 white people, 50 white people, and we stuck out, you know, and so everyone's staring at you, hundreds of people staring at you when you walk through town and certain things that like that to kind of make people uncomfortable, especially it made my wife very uncomfortable. So there was a lot of things to get through. Uh, there was a lot of um, dying of the self and uh, going out into a, an atmosphere and an environment that made you feel uncomfortable. But with that, you know, Philippians 4.13, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And with all of these difficulties and hindrances, also even more serious hindrances in, in terms of uh, the potential threat of constantly being robbed which uh, we were robbed uh, several times. One of the time was rather dangerous as we were gassed out in our home. And um, they put a sleeping gas in the home. We stayed asleep and they robbed us at their leisure. And th- that was very concerning. And not that just white people get robbed because there are many Africans who have money. And so anybody who has any type of uh, uh, ability to get somebody food, they can get robbed. 
So a lot of hindrances, but the Lord saw us through that. And with that, he works for the good for those who love him or are called according to his purpose. We were getting so much advice from people that we needed to focus on our marriage before um, a, such a endeavor as moving to Africa and planting a church and not being around anybody we know or family or friends. And it really the opposite was true because we moved to Africa so early in our marriage. And I'm not giving a standard of, of what people should do. I'm, I'm simply saying my experience. But because we were so early in our marriage and all we had was each other when we moved, it actually caused me and my wife to grow very, very close. And we spent a lot of time together being new missionaries in Africa, along with new uh, a new wife and a new husband. So for us, it had the opposite effect. The stress and the hindrances and standing out as minority in an African culture uh, drew me and my wife very close to each other and uh, ourselves to God. So the people in the community must have had questions, either they vocalized or not, and said, what are you people doing here? Yeah, I mean... um you know, the, the, they were used to missionaries. Missionaries have been flooding into East Africa for a hundred years. So, no, they knew why we were there. Um, they would, you know, ask us whether we were there for uh, medical treatment or the, those. But they, there was no shock that we were there as missionaries to plant a church. I see. So based on your background, and I don't really know your wife's background, but based on your background, you've had periods in your life where you were truly outcast on the Mm -hmm. skids. I mean, you were homeless. You were close to death. Do you think that 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 gave you eyes to see things in a place like Kenya that you weren't above all this or, or you were better than these folks Do you think that it was easier or harder for you to see people who didn't look exactly like you as image bearers of God? Um, Absolutely. No doubt it was a help. Uh, God works for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It's amazing what God can do. And even our rebellion, our rebellious experiences in the world. You know, I I had been stabbed in St. Louis in the back a violent drug life, having to try to to decipher whether or not somebody was going to stab me or shoot me or lie to me or steal from me. So all of that experience coming in really equipped me for such a violent, dangerous world in Africa. And really God has used it to give me kind of a clear eye to see the shenanigans going on uh, with the, uh, uh, me and my family in Africa. You know, I, I, I was such a wicked man that the greatest shock at 21 years old, when the Lord was speaking to me, asking me to serve him, my shock was why he wanted me to. Right. No one else wanted me at that point. I was quite a big loser you know i i had no money i had no clothes except on my back i was out on the streets it it was a really desperate situation so when i heard the call of god to be born again to believe on the lord jesus christ and he loved me and wanted to forgive me and cleanse me of all unrighteousness it was quite a shock 
and that he wanted me on to forgive me and cleanse me. And so being in Africa, I have, I, I, it's just not something I struggle with. I'm not trying to sound pompous. I struggle with other things. I struggle with lust and I struggle with different desires. But one of the things I do not struggle with is seeing those whom I love so much there in Africa as people, not only as equals, but people who I believe are even better than me. I, I, I'm the worst amongst them. Uh, and I believe that, as Paul said to the Jews, he's the least of, of the Jews. And I believe that these people, I mean, I've learned so much from these Africans, patience, kindness, um, a faith. It was Billy Graham who was asked, who do you think the greatest Christian who's ever lived? And Billy Graham says, I don't know. I think it's somebody we've never heard of who's lived in a third world country and has had such difficulties with poverty, not having food, who still had their faith in Jesus Christ without compromise. Yeah. And so these people in Africa have really um, encouraged my faith. They have taught me more than I've taught them. And I know, at least when I first read Paul's statement about he was the least, my first impression was that that's a lot of hyperbole, right? Mm. He, he just said that, you know, because that sounds like the noble thing to say. Yeah. But, but we all have things in our past that God shows us that despite what we did, he was more faithful and that for me, and we don't have to go into my background right now, the opportunity to serve is huge. It's yeah. like, you, you want me to help. I know there are times when I ask a person to help and the person will say, you want my help? And I went, yeah, yeah. your help is good. Let's have your yeah. help. And they're like, well, nobody ever wants my help. And I think yeah. that spurs those of us who came to faith as adults to realize that the privilege in terms of suffering for Christ, not that we wake up and go, gee, I hope we suffer today, Mm -hmm. But that it's an opportunity and it's a way to demonstrate in our fiber gratitude for this wonderful gift called being placed in the family of God. Amen. Amen. Yeah, the Bible says those who've been forgiven much love much. It's always shocked me reading that because everyone has been forgiven much if they're born again. True. And, and what Jesus was doing there is he wasn't saying there are certain people who are just such vile sinners that they're going to love me more because I've forgiven them so much. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, our Lord, he is saying those who can recognize the infinite holiness of Christ, their wickedness in light of the infinite, infinite holiness of Christ, will understand how much he saved them from and will love him very much. And my my message to a lot of people is you don't have to have done heroin or alcohol is, or drunkenness or homosexuality or adultery or so, to, to be forgiven of that and to love God much. We just need to recognize the selfish, prideful, self-seeking nature that's in our heart. And to be forgiven of that will cause us to love the Lord so, so very much. I think that's what Paul was. And yes, he was, he, he was responsible of people getting killed who were Christians. And he, just, he actually believed he's the least amongst the Jews. Yes. Okay. So I've often heard people 
somewhat arrogantly criticize missionaries who go outside the U.S. saying there are plenty of people in the United States that need help. Why do these people have to go to Africa, India, China, or whatever? How do you respond to the field, the mission field that God has planted you? I mean, a lot of Westerners will say, why Africa? I mean, I'm, I doubt many Westerners could tell you where Kenya was on a map. Yeah. Well, yeah, and they often think of people in Kenya running around with a loincloth or naked in the woods chasing lions. <laughs> and it's just not the case. It's um, Though it's third world because it's poverty, you know, uh, we have our clothes on and there's cities and there's buildings and infrastructure. No, it's a, it's a wonderful question. It's actually something that has really disturbed me. I just was a couple months ago preaching in Philadelphia and um, I got put on a call with a gentleman who thought, you know, he would start rebuking me for being a missionary outside of the States when there's so much turmoil in the States right now. It's really a small view, I think, of who God is. And so many people think with uh, either or mentality. And so, of course, salvation is either or. You either believe in Jesus Christ or you don't. You either follow him. He's the Lord of your life or he isn't. And so there's an absolutism that must be occupied with our belief in the Bible and certain things, but many other things. And I, um, and, and this is a perfect example of that. And that it's not doing the work of Christ only in America because you're an American or doing the work of Christ in Africa if you're an African. That's silly. Jesus Christ said that his people will do work all throughout the world to go into the uttermost parts of the world. And so right there is a command by Jesus Christ to go to the uttermost parts of the world. Also, America has been very blessed with its Judeo-Christian background. And we have had the greatest type of discipleship really the world has ever seen. And we have been very equipped as Americans to go throughout the whole world preaching the gospel. And with that being equipped by the word of God for the work of the ministry, as Ephesians 4 talks about, we have the call of God from the scripture itself to go into the uttermost. There's entire people groups who's never heard of the name of Jesus Christ in Africa and Asia and South America. And they're not there within the their natives sharing the name of Jesus Christ. So it is our responsibility as Christians to go that, but it's not either or. It's both representing Christ as Americans in America, and it's also representing Christ to the othermost parts of the world. Yes. And, you know, when I heard you preach, um, you were preaching, I think you preached twice that day, and there were thousands of people who heard you. You weren't saying, hey, everybody, you need to go to Africa. That's not what you were saying. And I think why I resonated with your message is you basically demonstrated that your ear you have to be listening because God is telling you something through his word, through his spirit, through other people. And so nobody's off the hook. Nobody gets a pass and say, oh, your calling is to go to Hawaii, sit on the beach 
and, you know, get a nice suntan and smile at all the people at the hotel. That, that's not the Great Commission. Mm-hmm. And your emphasis, as I've learned, has come from James one twenty seven and Proverbs mm-hmm. 14.31. So talk a little bit about the thrust of your ministry there and who are the main people that you're serving. Yeah, and that's quite a a recent endeavor in terms of helping the orphans and uh, the poor. And it, it's it's been in development. It's interesting when you, you know, you ask the questions, you've obviously talked to many people and there's the debates over everything, endless debates. Oh, Americans should stay in America and this calling and that calling. I never even planned on going to Africa. It was somebody who gave me the opportunity to go to the missions trip. So we must follow God as he leads us. Um, I had no idea what God had in store. And so when I did get the the plane ticket, we're flying to Africa, we were just going to plant a church. I had no idea what I was in for. And we go and we did plant a church. And I believe the church is the foundation of society and Christ is the foundation of the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. As the Bible says, I believe it. And so our foundational emphasis is the body of Christ being discipled through a local obedient church. And so Great Commission Ministries that we just started last summer has now desired through experience as we, as I have lived in Africa, I've experienced something that people in America have never experienced. And and I'm not saying people haven't starved in America, but usually starvation in America, it, it, it's so rare. It's, it's less than 1% of the population. And even that, however many, 1% or 2% is willful. They just choose not to eat food. Across our world, there are people who are starving to death. In Africa and in South America and Asia, they have no choice, and especially children. And so my desire to plant a church and, and, and you know, in a sense, I guess, selfishly mind my own business and just be a blessing at the church. It was met with children coming in who had no mothers and no fathers. And it wasn't some sort of game plan. Okay, you know, we're going to move to Kenya and start a church. And 10 years into moving into Kenya and having a nice church, we're going to start helping orphans. I never planned on building orphanages. Never planned on helping women who were in violent situations. It was the Lord leading us. And I've been telling this to churches across America as I've gone and had the privilege of sharing with. What if whatever church you pick, you know, there was 50 kids that showed up. Mind you, we're not in America. They have no shoes. They have no clothes. And they are hungry. And there's no place to take them. There's no government facilities. There's no homeless shelter. There's nowhere. When you send them away, they go back on the street and they're dead within 12 months. And that's what we were faced with. It wasn't a 10-year, 12-year plan. It was the Lord has delivered unto us kids who need a home, who need a mom and dad, who need a church that they need to be plugged into and discipled. And with that, we started Great Commission Ministries. And 
even in that, it's not both in. You either do spiritual ministry or you do humanitarian aid. The Lord is compassionate with people who need help. He wants to help the poor. And rather than having a social con construct with laws that, that make people, uh, through taxation or other things, help the poor, I believe it should be a Christian ethic to where they voluntarily say, our brothers and sisters in Christ across the world are dying and children are starving to death. And uh, too much has been given, much is required. And that goes along the argument, too, of, hey, should Americans be doing missions in Africa? Well, we have a lot in America. We should be helping people across the world voluntarily. And so that's really what started this. It was just the cause of uh, circumstances. Me having a church and kids showing up needing food. And honestly, I'm afraid that if I am to turn them away, say, go be clothed, go be fed, and just pray for them and do nothing, that I will be violating the will of God revealed to me in Scripture. And I think that's the point. It's not... Mm -hmm. We have to think of this grandiose calling. It's what comes in front of you. Yes. What shows up. God didn't need your permission to send orphans to you. Absolutely. Because you've read the scripture specifically, and I'll read James one twenty seven: pure and undefiled religion before God and the father is this to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. And that's what we're supposed to do. Yeah. We're not supposed to finance political campaigns. We're not supposed mm -hmm. to um, get as many degrees as we possibly can. And and to go back to your mentor, Ken Graves, who I've had the opportunity to speak to, uh, he is such a down-to-earth, in-your-face kind of person mm -hmm. that if you're looking to respond to God's call, he would be your man. He's not going to give you a lot of coddling. He seems to have people, and I've known other people who've gone through the program that you went through. He mm -hmm. gets their attention with, are you on board or not? Mm -hmm. And when you say yes, he goes, okay, this is what it's like being on this ship. And mm -hmm. some very strong people emerge from it. And I mm -hmm. think we need to have that kind of attitude in terms of our service. If it's the widow down the street, if it's the child who's failing in school and you can help that, if you can supply a scholarship, I think that we can do it with our personal time and effort, but also as you go around, you want people to help you fund what you're doing. And mm -hmm. it's not that if your money goes to Kenya, that somehow or other you're neglecting other people. Mm -hmm. It's Kenya and, or, yes. you know, so in other words, we don't have to be just so single-minded that says, this is what I do. What I like about your ministry is you're not just social gospel people. Mm -hmm. You know that the most important thing you can impart to orphans is the knowledge and love of Christ. Amen. It, it's it's the foundation. I it's it's burdened me deeply to travel across Africa, especially East Africa, visit children's home after children's home after children's home, only to realize that these Christian missionaries are really not discipling properly, not that they don't share the name of Christ, not that they don't open their Bibles. They do. It's they're not taking the kids to church. 
And I, I think that this is an objective. I don't think there should be debate here. The, the Lord has commanded us to assemble together where the, the elements of the body of Christ are there. Pastors, elders, deacons, baptism, communion, corporate fellowship, corporate study of God's word, corporate prayer. And in an environment like this, there is a supernatural strengthening that happens, a supernatural encouragement, a supernatural blessing even that I saw missing in all these children's homes. Very good intentions, even saving kids from trash heaps and burnings and drownings. Some real incredible stories that really grip your heart while missing the most important thing, and that is the gospel and discipleship, the Great Commission through the Church of Jesus Christ. And so that's what our emphasis is. Yeah, it's really difficult to watch kids starve to death, but it's much more difficult for me to watch kids not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to be born again, to be discipled, to be strengthened by the body of Christ. And that's what we want to see more than feeding them physically. We want to see them born again and being discipled by the body of Christ and encouraged. And you actually end up doing both because you have somebody's attention when now their stomach isn't growling or they're not emaciated and now they've had a meal. And more often than not, people will say, why are they doing this? You Mm. know, the, the big question as to why. Well, Josh, um, we're coming to the end of our time. How would people get a hold of you or find out more about your ministry? Mm-hmm. Where would they go? Well, please just go on our website, and that is gcmco.com, gcmco.com. And, uh, yeah, go on there, see what we're doing. Please read the information. When you first get the website popped up, it, it may seem like just another missions organization that only wants to do humanitarian aid. It's it's really not either or, it's both and. Yes, we want to feed children, we want to help women, we want to give people running water, but our emphasis is the Great Commission done through local churches. And so read it and, 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 and check us out. You can also call us in our offices at uh, 207-600-7770. And yeah, just just feel free to reach out to us and ask us questions and see what God's doing. I can tell you the open doors have been incredible. I ha- I've had a meeting in the last couple months with Franklin Graham where he gave Great Commission Ministries eight acres of land. We've had uh, enough donations to build three children's homes and a couple missionary housing and a school for the kids. So the open doors have been incredible. The Lord is on the move. He is interested in the orphans um, getting food, but more interested in them getting the spiritual food and the living water that causes salvation that only flows from Jesus Christ. And we're excited about it all. All right. One last question, and then I will Mm -hmm. let you go. You have three children. Mm -hmm. Um, They didn't choose. None none of our children chose where they were going to be born, where they're going to live. Um, I've talked and I've known a number of missionaries over the years. And one of the things that happens when they come back to the States, the whole missionary family is sort of shocked at the degradation that seems to have taken place in America. And they look forward to going back because 
it, it seems to be a saner, more wholesome environment, which may sound strange to people. Mm. Tell me a little bit about how your kids respond to the fact that mom and dad were called here and, and what their place is within the work that you do. Our, our kids, the Lord has really blessed us. They've been very pliable. Our family is very close. We love spending the day together and just hanging out. And there is certain things you got to consider as they get older and develop friendships and, you know, both parts of the world, both in America and there. There, there's there's challenges in each country. What's happening in America uh, is, is is beyond words. The insanity, insanity, the lunacy, the complete disregard for the image of God in girls and boys and men and women. It is something that we're not facing in Kenya, um, in the school system. Um, this gender identity and transgenderism and these operations and this mutilation and all this stuff has been a shock to to discover when we return uh but also there's violence in africa unlike america you know um where we live in bangor maybe not in california you can still leave your cars unlocked and certain stuff like that so for my kids they're just blessed to uh be in an environment and uh, where they have parents who love them. My kids have grown up seeing kids starving to death. And so I have sensed the Lord working in my kids that they are just, they're, when we pray every night, I think the biggest prayer I hear my kids say is, God, thank you that we have a mom and dad who love us and we have a house and we have food because they've seen so many who don't have houses and food. And it has really given them a deep appreciation having that perspective on how many kids are suffering in the world. Yes. And what are the ages of your children? 11, 9, and 7. Okay. Some people would say that's a hard life, and I know other people would say that's a blessed life. And so it, it really depends on, and I think this goes back to the calling. You had a unique call in your life. You ignored it for a while. You responded. But just because you then heard it, you also knew you needed a foundation so that you could be useful. What would you say to young people, like I referenced at the beginning, who you say, what's God calling you to do? And their answer is, I don't know. What piece of advice would you give them in the midst of their, I don't know? You know, I'd give them three pieces of advice. First and foremost, trust God's word. He has called us objectively, the word of God, has spoken to us his will for our lives. And something that really messed me up is I didn't understand why God was telling me not to do the things that my body was screaming out to do. Don't have sexual immorality, sex outside of marriage. Uh, and and I, you know, at, at that age of 13, 14, 15 years old, That's everything I wanted to do. And now that I realize I should have trusted God, I didn't understand it then. I rejected it. I didn't trust him. But when you go down a path of sin, it leads you to destruction. And they just need to trust God. So it speaks of the second thing I would advise, and that is just don't give in to pleasure. Give into righteousness. 
For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. For young people, run away from youthful lust. Trust God's word. You may not understand it right now, but I'm telling you, God knows what he's talking about. And he cares for you more than you care for yourself when you destroy yourself by giving into pleasure. And in terms of the call of God, read your Bibles, obey it, and you will be guided down the path of righteousness and the call of God. Excellent advice. Listeners, the website is gcmco.com, which stands for Great Commission Ministries. So that's the GCM part. And um, Josh means what he says. He is interested in sharing his perspective, which he's done today, helping you to see what God has in store for you. And if I, I can tell you anything, you do not seem like a desperate, despondent, useless person. Seeing you in person and talking with you now, there's great vitality. And I think it's the vitality of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Holy Spirit has strengthened me even when we get weary. And I thank God for his grace. And I feel so privileged to get to do the work that he has called me to. Very good. Listeners, as always, you can reach me at out of the question podcast at gmail.com for questions or comments. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.